All right, we good now? All right, my name is Brian. I'm an alcoholic. Um, thank you, man. Don, thank you. Um, Pat, Ron. This man, Ron, that uh, Pat was talking about 22 years ago. Um, man that I never met. Just like uh, Chris's parents coming to believe in God because of him. Um, that man, Ron, saved my life. Had a hand in saving my life. And uh, constant thought of others. I don't know how the fuck we do that. Um, my sobriety date is February 1st, 2009. When I walked in here, my constant thought was pussy, alcohol, more pussy, more alcohol. I had a wife and kids at home. Constant thought of money, more pussy, and more alcohol. And uh, well, I'm going to start with my sobriety date when I walked in here. God damn, this thing is fucking loud. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> my sobriety date is February 1st, 2009. Um, and I was suffering that day. I was at my jumping off place. I was drinking and drinking and drinking. I took my first drink at nine years old. Um, you know, my. I got a picture in this fucking book here. This is a picture of me when I was nine with a shot of Jägermeister and a Bud, a Bud Light. I was drinking with my aunt and my family. I had a Raiders jersey on. I was fucking angry. I'm not even a Raiders fan anymore. <laughs> and, uh... You know, the first, the first time that I took a drink of alcohol, it was like this magic elixir. You know, I was a little kid on the playground in elementary school, kindergarten. I got my first resentment about those fuckers taking my bike. And, uh, you know, I had this drink of alcohol when I was nine, and I had this hole inside of me, and I could feel the alcohol going down my back and in my legs and in my arms and in my fingers and in my spine, and I could feel this, like, ease when I took that drink. And... Uh, and when I took that first shot of Jägermeister, that tasted like shit. And, uh, but I knew that I needed more, and I wanted more. You know? And I was with my aunt and my mom, first drink, and uh, drinking and drinking and drinking, and I, I fell asleep or blacked out or whatever happened. And I woke up the next day, and I thought, I'm nine years old. How am I going to find more alcohol? And uh, I wanted it again. And my drinking didn't really take off then because I was so young. But every chance that I got, I would try and drink. You know, kids in middle school, I had a hard time in middle school. That first drink was right after my dad left. I'm the oldest of five kids, and uh, my dad was a car salesman, and I learned um, how to have a defective character from my dad. That's what I'm going to be talking about, steps six and seven. Um, my dad was constantly lying, drinking in front of us, beating the shit out of my mom, beating the crap out of us always threatening to kill himself. Um, I was a scared little kid just running around trying to survive. And, uh, you know, I'd take that drink and, and it would be like a shield. It would, like, block everything out. Fucking block the world out. Um, my dad left. Uh, the day that my dad left, he was wearing a red shirt, a pair of blue jeans, all beat to shit, and a pair of sandals, and he gave me a hug, and he said... 
he was holding me, and I was like crying and crying and crying. I'm like, Dad, don't fucking leave. Well, I don't think I said that. I said, Dad, don't leave. And I'm like, I'm like, why can't my dad just stay? Why can't he just be here? And uh, he put his arms around me and hugged me, and he said, make sure everything's taken care of. And he like put the responsibility of being a man on me when I was nine and uh, raising my sister and my three brothers. And, you know, so my dad leaves, and I'm, you know, I'm praying, like, God, I want my dad back. You know, I'm angry at God, and I'm angry at the kids at school, and I don't fit in there, and I'm, you know, I just don't feel right inside. And I'm starting to hang out with the wrong kids, and I'm drinking more, and I'm drinking more, and, um, you know, it leads up through high school, and uh, I'm just drinking and drinking every chance I get. You know, I drop out of high school. I move up here to Big Bear my junior year of high school. I came up here for a weekend party, and then I never went home. I went home four months later after uh, partying and partying and partying. I went back to high school and re-registered and went to school for a few months and then dropped out again next winter and went up to Mammoth. And I lived up in the mountains there, and I just found the peace up here. It was like I was searching for something. I was searching for that God. And I was looking in the mountains, and I was looking in the bottle, and I was looking in the pussy, and I was looking in the money, and I was never finding this God that you guys talk about here. And, uh, you know, I get married, have kids, great life, wife, all this stuff. And, uh, and from, from, night, from 2001, when I meet my wife, I'm just drinking every day. I work in a restaurant. But that's what we do. We drink. We're drinking every night. And every time I took a drink, I had to drink more. I had to drink more. And, uh, you know, the restaurant closes at 2 in the morning, but I'd get home at like 5 or 6 in the morning. You know, I was just drinking and going on. And, uh, and the alcohol was a steroid for my character defects. You know, the more, you know, guys take steroids to go to the gym and lift fucking weights and they get big. You know, for me, I would drink alcohol, and it was a steroid for, for the lust and the, my ego and the fear and all the anger and all the resentments. And the more I drank, and the, it was never solving my problem. And, uh, you know, I got into real estate, and uh, I was hiding behind this success, you know, doing loans, making money, making money, 2004, 5, 6, 7, into 2008. You know, I got wife, three kids, houses, cars, fucking money in the bank, all this stuff. I got a big ego, you know. I thought I was doing good, and the more I would drink, the more that hole inside of me would get big. And... Uh, one day I, I walked out of the gym, you know, I was trying to do something to make myself feel better. And uh, February 1st, 2009, I walk, I fucking run out of the gym, and I'm like dying inside. I'm just desperate. And if you guys, well, you guys must be fucking alcoholic, you're sitting here. <laughs> you guys know the fucking pain and the suffering inside of all the drinking and all the lies and all the guilt and all the shame and all the remorse and the alcohol is not working anymore and I fucking go outside and I'm screaming to God and uh, and I was so pissed off at God and I'll tell you guys why in a minute um, and what I heard which today I believe is God since I'm standing here, 
was that you need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't know why the fuck I heard that because I'd never been to AA. I didn't know anybody in AA. And I heard you need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous and not like next week or in two weeks you need to go right now. So I go home and I get on Google and I'm like fucking hurting. And uh, I Google Santa Clarita Alcoholics Anonymous and pick up the phone and I call the old stepping stones on Soledad and this guy Sean answers the phone and and I'm fucking just breaking down like, dude, I'm hurting, man. Uh, and I see this like meeting schedule, you know, I don't know what the fuck to do. I don't don't know anything about AA and there's these meetings, you know, meeting, 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 just Monday through Friday. And uh, this guy says, Sean, this guy Sean says, come down here, man, I'll, I'll sit down with you. And I walk down there and I'm hurting and I sit down with this guy Sean and he, uh, he's got this big story and he's making money and all this shit and I related to him a little bit. And uh, he says, go to the next meeting. And I go to this meeting, which I didn't, can't remember. The only reason why I know is because my first sponsor would go to this meeting. But I go to this 11 o'clock meeting, and there's this old, short, bald fucker in there. <laughs> and, he, and he's got a book that's sitting there on the, on the thing. This book's sitting there, and he's all fucking beat to shit. And this guy's got a big old smile. And I have no big fucking smile. Um, you know, I was hurting. And uh, he, he reaches his hand out and he shakes my hand and he says, welcome. Son, you're going to be okay. And uh, I see these big teeth coming back at me. And I could, like, feel something. This man had something that I wanted. And, uh, and so he told me what to do. You know, and I was desperate and uh, had some willingness that day. And he put this book in my hand. Biggest secret in Alcoholics Anonymous is right here. You guys, if you read this thing. Um, so anyways, I go home and I open this book and I start reading that first night. And for, uh, for a whole year before walking into Alcoholics Anonymous, February 1st, 2009, March of 2008, um, my wife and I are out partying with some friends. We go to Howl at the Moon and... We're with one of her girlfriends and and uh, her husband, and I'm jealous of her girlfriend, and I have this envy, right? And I'm looking at other women, I'm having lust, and but it's really the envy and the jealousy of my wife and her friend that's like fucking me up that night. And uh, we get in this huge fight, and I fucking take the car battery that was sitting next to my garage, and I throw it through the window of my excursion, I break the fucking windows out in the truck. I go in the house, I'm yelling at her, I take my wedding ring off, I throw it at her fucking face, I'm screaming at my wife, I'm calling her words that I won't even say to you guys again, and uh, I'm punching the doors in the house, and I have this thought that I'm going to run out to my motorhome and get all the gas for my dirt bikes and pour it around the house and fucking light this place on fire. And I have this thought, I'm like, holy fuck, I'm in a deep shit. And I, I could see my house burning down. Actually, I hadn't done it, thankfully. I might not be a fireman today. <laughs> uh, but I see my house, in my mind, I see my house burning down, and I'm like, dude, I am fucked, you know? And my, I, look at my, I look at Vanessa's eyes and, like, the terror that she's looking back at me. I will never forget the way that she was looking at me that night. 
And uh, I run over to my neighbor Matt's house. I don't know why I ran to his house. He's sober 20 years. I don't, like, put any of this together, but it's a man that I thought I could talk to. And I bang on his door. It's 3 in the morning, and I just fucking cry in this man's arms. And uh, I was part of this men's team. I did this Sterling Men's Weekend. Anybody here do the fucking Sterling Men's Weekend? I did this Sterling Men's Weekend when I was 21, and uh, this was seven years before I got sober. You know, and the Sterling Men's Weekend is fucking awesome. You know, you find the source of your power. You're a fucking man. You know, you got to do whatever you want. Just be successful and how you treat your wife, how you treat your wife. And uh, I go over to my friend Matt's house, and I break down in his arms, and all these guys are coming to my house the next morning because I'm having this, like, team meeting at my house. And they see the fucking glass all broken out, and they see the windows all broken down, and I can't find my wedding ring, and they help me find my ring, and they help me take the door down and clean up the house, and I got a reek of alcohol. And, uh, and that day I thought, I can't drink like this anymore, you know. And so back to uh, when I read the big book the first night. I'm reading the table of contents because I fucking like reading. And, uh, and this is the first thing that started to save my life, crossing the river of denial. I read this. She finally realized that when she enjoyed her drinking, she couldn't control it. And when she controlled it, she couldn't enjoy it. And I identified that because I, when I drank, I couldn't stop drinking. When I drank, I had to drink more. And from March of 2008 until February 2009, for 11 months, I tried to control my drinking. And I was fucking crazy. Worse, worse than I'd ever, ever had been. And uh, uh, October 2008, right before I walked in Alcoholics Anonymous, we go on our five-year anniversary cruise. We get another big fight. And I run to the back of the cruise ship, and I'm feeling that like loneliness, that despair. And I run and jump over the back railing to the cruise ship in the middle of the ocean down in Mexico. And I, I, I'm straddling this rail, and there's a moon, and I can see the light on the water, and I'm fucking done. I can't live like this anymore. I'm jumping off this thing. And, uh, and then I have this fucking thought of Maddie. My daughter's two years old, and I'm, like, jumping off this ship because I can't take the fucking pain anymore. And... Uh, my little two-year-old daughter, Maddie, standing on this patch of grass, cute little pink dress, two years old, crying. Like, why is my daddy dead? Crying at my funeral. And uh, so much pain. And I crawled off that railing, and I went back <clears throat> to the bar, and I fucking hate the wife that I'm with, and I hate myself that I'm with. And I'm envious of her friend. And I'm angry. And I'm resentful. And I'm full of fear. And I'm drinking. And the alcohol is not taking it away. And this goes on from October of 08 to February 1st, 2009, where I just can't take it any longer. And I, the day that I screamed out to God, I wanted to put a gun to my head and blow my brains out. I was done. And... Uh, so I go to this meeting, I get a book, and that short little bald fucker with the big old shiny teeth says, son, you're going to be okay. He, he tells me to go home and read this book. And uh, that guy, Sean, didn't call me back. He was going to take me to the rafters the next morning. I got resentment towards him. And uh, this guy says, why don't you come and meet me at uh, the way station, 7 o'clock the next morning. And I go over there. I'm sitting across from this guy, and... Uh, he, 
he asked me, are you willing to go to any lengths to get sober? Thank you. <coughs> he says, are you willing to go to any lengths to get sober? And I said, no. And I said... <laughs> fucking got honest for the first time. And then I said, well, I don't know. I don't think so. I didn't realize that's what I was trying to do. It was, it was this hole inside of me. I couldn't go on feeling this way anymore. And, uh, and yeah, there was the alcohol. When I drank, I couldn't stop drinking. And in the big book, it tells us when we, can, when we have little control over the amount we t- drank or can't control it or can't stop, the exact wording is different than that, but then we're probably alcoholic. Well, he outlined that for me. And I thought, I, I relate to that. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, he said, thank God he asked me the next question. Are you willing to go to any lengths to not feel the way you feel today? And I said, yeah, I'll do anything. So he outlined what's in the book, and he told me to go home and read, and he gave me the step one writing, and I started writing on it. And then I realized that I'm an alcoholic. And with every fiber of my being, like Abe's talking about step one, two, and three, and... Uh, and when I took the first step, it fucking miracles started happening because I was at my, I was willing. I was so done, and I was at my bottom. And in step one in the 12 and 12, it says, while it's insistence that every AA must hit bottom first, the answer is that few people will sincerely try to practice AA program unless they have hit bottom. For practicing AA's remaining 11 steps means the adoption of attitudes and actions that almost no alcoholic who is still dreaming, drinking can dream of taking. Who wishes to be rigorously honest and tolerant? Who wants to confess his faults to another and make restitution for harm done? Who cares anything about a higher power, let alone meditation and prayer? Who wants to sacrifice time and energy in trying to carry AA's message to the next sufferer? No, the average alcohol self-centered in the extreme doesn't care for this prospect unless he has to do these things in order to stay alive himself. And... Uh, <clears throat> and I was suffering when I got here, and uh, and if if I took one more drink, I was gonna die. And uh, so this, I'm going to the meetings, and they tell me to do all these things that you guys hear in meetings, which is, doesn't actually even say this in the book, but it's helped build your foundation. Go to 90 meetings in 90 days, get two phone numbers so you can get plugged in the fellowship. I'm doing these things, right? And thank God I was doing those things because when we get to step six and se- six and seven, we have these defects that we're going to learn about, which I'm going to talk about getting up to that. Um, <clears throat> I came up to this retreat. I was 43, 45, 44, 45 days sober, I think, the first retreat, 2009. And, uh, you know, I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm trying to listen with my heart. I'm, like, suffering still, you know. Anybody try to be 43 days sober and be married? <laughs> right? It's, uh, it wasn't very easy. And how to 43 days sober and, and go to a business that, you're, that you never were honest in, you know, that, you, that, I, that I was deceitful in, you know. The real estate market, if you look at the biggest two economic moments in 200 years of this country's history, the Great Depression and, and the Great Recession, which was February 3rd, 2009, two days after I got sober. 
It was like the fucking bottom of this country, and I had been doing loan after loan after loan, and I had so much part of in all of what was going on. And I had so much part of, of all the lies. You know, and I look in the mirror, and I, I, I'm disgusted with the person I'm looking at. And uh, anyway, so I'm at this retreat. I'm hanging out. Chris O'Dell, where the fuck is Chris at here? Chris and some other gangster guys like him. We're, we're like three, uh, three, dorm, or three barracks over here, and I'm hanging out one night and hanging out with these guys that I normally wouldn't hang out with. And I'm like trying to soak in all this stuff, and I'm, I, I want what you guys, I want what you guys have so bad. I wanted what you guys had so bad. And uh, I go over to my bunk, and I jump on the top, and I, and I open this book, and I start reading, and I start reading. And, uh, you know, I want to let go of all that shit that I was holding on to. All that suffering since I was a little kid. All the resentment. All the uh, fucking all of it. I was done. And uh, <clears throat> it's like two in the morning. And I'm fucking reading and reading and reading. And I get to the step, third step. And right after the third step prayer, I'm reading this. And I'm like asking, why? What does this mean? What does this mean? And I get to the third step and it says, we thought well before taking this step. Making sure we were ready. That we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. And I'm like, what does that mean? What does that mean? I'm in fucking dorm. Everybody's sleeping and I'm reading. And I want what you guys got so bad. I don't want to fucking suffer anymore. And I read that and I'm like, what does that mean? God, what the fuck does this mean? And uh, we thought, well... God, what a fucking pussy, huh? Just up here crying. <laughs> we thought well before taking the step, making sure we were ready. Well, step six says we were we we're entirely ready. It's the same fucking thing as step three. And I said, God, what does that mean? For me, what does it mean? And the spiritual experience happened for me in that moment up here. We thought well before taking a step, so I thought, what does it mean for me? It's all the, the, the dishonesty. I wasn't faithful to my wife. I was a terrible husband. You know, I have this, you guys, most of you know my wife. I have a great wife. She's a fucking pain in the ass, but she's a great wife. <laughs> Can we edit that part, Eric? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking lot of editing, dude. I'm like, God, what does this mean? And for me, it all boiled down to to being honest. You know, having the willingness to be honest. And it was, it was, and it, and it, and I couldn't be honest without the dishonest. And there was so much 
dishonest in my business and in my marriage and in my life since I was a little kid up until walking into the rooms of February 1st, 2009. And, uh, and so I'm in there and I, and I, like, I don't know how the fuck it happened, but I, it came down to that, honestly, and I gave it to God. I'm like, done. And like Chris talked about, that weight, he's freaking doing the Irish jig thing. That's how I fe- felt in that, in that bed. I knew that I could be a sober man. I knew that I was going to come off this fucking mountain and get what you guys got. But just because it happened one time at 43 days sober doesn't mean at a year sober or two years sober or six months or six years or nine years that all of a sudden we're just cured and and honest, right? So in step six here, I'm going to read a couple things. You guys know what the beginning of step six says? This is a step that separates the men from the boys. I was a fucking little kid when I walked in here. And uh, step six in here says, AA's way of stating the best possible attitude one can take in order to make a beginning on this lifetime job. Step six isn't a one-time thing. I don't just take step six and then everything's good one time. We're entirely ready. If we have a hard time with step six, we have a hard time with step three for me. I hear guys talk about they have a hard time doing step four and five. That's just writing the shit down. The real hard time is step six and seven. Because you write it down, and then you got to let it go and give it to God. Well, for me, the miracle in that moment was I had taken the third step. Truly how I feel was the third step, and step six happened, and step seven happened. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character and humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. That, for me, is what happened when I took the third step prayer. But that was only with those two defects. Right? So, I asked that question. What does it mean, the difference? This is the step that separates the men from the boys. It says in here, So the difference between the boys and the men is the difference between striving for a self-determined objective and for the perfect objective which is of God. It's not just the alcohol. If we would gain any real advantage in the use of this step on problems other than alcohol, we shall need to make a brand new venture into open-mindedness. And then going to the end of this, step six, the moment we say no, never, no, never, if you have a character defect that you're clinging on to still, it doesn't matter if you got 50 years sober or if you got 30 days sober, because it tells us in here it's a lifetime job, right? The moment we say no, never, our minds close against the grace of God. Delay is dangerous. 
and rebellion may be fatal. This is the exact point at which we abandon limited objectives and move towards God's will for us. So how do we do step six and seven? Uh, can, can you cut break? So the way that it was outlined to me and what it says in the big book, I'm going to paraphrase a little, is, uh, you know, we, we get to step four and we make this inventory and we make our resentments and we go through the columns and we identify our defects of character. And uh, I always kind of struggle with this until I read this other book, Drop the Rock. And... Uh, you know, we, we have the pride, the fear, resentment, honesty. And uh, on the back of that Drop the Rock book, it, uh, it has this list of character defects, shortcomings, and then on the opposite is program principles. So I don't have all the answers, and I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I do. But I wanted to give these out. You know, if you're new at this retreat, or even if you're not new, I think that we're all up here because we're all on a life or death errand. And if any of you are alcoholic, which you are because you're here, and you don't want to take a drink again, and you trust what it says in the book, we're on a lifetime job here. And uh, Pat asked me four months ago, or Pat and Dave and all those guys asked me if I'd speak. And uh, what, such an honor to be up here talking to you men. And uh, <clears throat> eight years ago, nine years ago, I was up at this retreat dying. And I wanted what you guys had so bad. I wonder what you guys had so bad. And uh, how much time do I got? All right. I don't have all the answers for this, but you guys can look at this. And I pray that you look at this and have some willingness and some open-mindedness to see what if one of these is glaring for you so that you can walk off this hill and give this over to God. Because I don't have the power to do this. God is the one who did this. And uh, how do we turn it over to God? Well, like Ron, being a man that I never met that saved my life. Um, you know, for all these new guys here, who's near? Le- less than one year sobriety. Bunch of guys. Fucking one year, less than one year sober. So hard to be sober for a day. So hard to be sober for 30 days. To walk around 
with untreated alcoholism to want to drink, to not want to drink, to walk through life not trusting God or hating God or being resentful at God. And, uh, you know, I gave my life to God up here at 43 days, and uh, these defects just didn't magically disappear. Um, Like nine or ten days later, I went to this business meeting. Um, My finances were all fucked up, and I needed money bad. You know, real estate was falling apart. I had to do this $1.3 million real estate deal. I was going to make 40-something thousand dollars on it. Our house was behind. I go to Sherman Oaks. I walk into this lady's house. She's looking all sexy. I'm going to make 40 grand on the deal. I just leave this retreat where we talk, where I, I have this miraculous fucking third step, you know, and uh, and this lady puts a beer in my hand. I'm like 52 or 53 days sober, and I won't let you guys have so bad. And I want to go home to my wife and be sober and faithful that night. I'm like, how the fuck am I going to do that? This lady's put a beer in my hand, and I need the money. And uh, and she's looking all sexy. Huh? Yeah. It's like the fucking miniskirts Don was talking about. There's yoga pants now. And, uh, and I'm 53 days sober, and what I hear is something one of you guys said. God will not put you in a place that you cannot walk through. And uh, I couldn't just, like, fucking pull a phone out of my pocket and be like, hold on, I'm going to call my sponsor real quick. Uh-huh. Right? So I give her the beer, and I'm like, hold on. And I walk outside. And I fucking pray to this God that you guys have been pounding into me for 52 days. And I'm like, God, please let me be willing to leave this deal and lose the money and figure out how to take care of my family and go home sober and faithful to my wife tonight. And I asked God that out in the parking lot, out in front of her house. And I walk back in, I look at this lady, I'm like, I'm not drinking with you, but I'm your guy. I'm doing this deal. And all of a sudden, I walk in, and the weight, like, lifts off of me. And you men were with me there, the men on this mountain. And, uh, yeah, fuck you, Abe. Abe was with me. (laughs) And, uh, and all the pain that you guys shared with me about doing the right thing and not doing the right thing. I wanted what you guys had so bad, and I was trying so hard, and uh, I walked back in, and the lady didn't look sexy anymore. Somehow this woman was no longer sexy, and uh, and the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous started to happen on me, and uh, I got in my car, the same freeway that I had driven drunk on many times, from Sherman Oaks to Santa Clarita. And I just start fucking crying like, 
I crawl in bed next to my wife. I didn't have a new case of herpes to give her or anything. <laughs> I didn't take a drink. And I pull into my driveway. And the second step starts to happen for me. After I'd taken the third step, I come to believe, I come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. God damn. Pretty soon I'll be doing talking, I could fucking start listening to you guys. Um, anyways, I crawl up bed next to my wife and I wake up the next morning different than I'd ever woken up ever in my life. And I uh, look in the mirror the next day and I didn't hate the person I was looking at. I fucking always hated the person I was looking at. Um, but I still didn't really trust God. I came to believe. I came to believe that night. And uh, a week later, you know, I met Stepping Stones and they're talking about this man that, uh, that had 13 or 14 years sober and he died. And uh, everybody's like telling everybody, you need to go. You need to go honor this man. And... Uh, so I drive, everybody's dressed nice, suit and tie, and I'm wearing a pair of camouflage shorts all beat to shit. I look like a fucking raggedy newcomer. And uh, I go up to Eternal Valley, and I, I didn't really know anybody there. I don't even know why the fuck I'm there. I didn't know this guy. And I sit down, and they're having a memorial for, uh, for Scott Donaldson. This is his, uh, his thing here. You guys know him? And... Uh, it's like Ron, I never met Ron, man that saved my life putting this retreat together. This man, Scott, I never met this man. And I'm sitting there, and there's these TVs and bands up there talking, and uh, talking about his best friend. And all these two TVs flashing all these images, pictures. I remember seeing a picture of him flying an airplane. I see another picture of him playing with his kids in the sprinklers. I could like, see the fucking water around his kids, and he's like, I could see the joy in him. He had the same smile that that short little bald fucker had when I walked in there. And I wanted what he had. And I never had that with my wife because I was too selfish and self-centered and full of fear and, and chasing the money and, and the greed and the lust. And I wanted what this man had. And uh, I was always resentful towards God. I couldn't even say the word God. When I walked in Alcoholics Anonymous, I hated God. I hated God from then all the way since I was a little kid. And uh, my hate for God came when I was five. A little five-year-old kid in a bathroom. man takes me in there. How could a man do shit to a little five-year-old kid? And just destroy a little child? And I carried around this, 
I stuffed it inside. I stuffed in the pain of what that man did to me in the bathroom when I was five years old. I stuffed it inside. I stuffed it and I was resentful at God. Fucking hated God. And uh, God abandoned me. He abandoned me when I was a little kid. He abandoned me when my dad walked out. All the times I prayed that I would treat my wife right, I couldn't. He abandoned me. And I'm at this guy's service. And uh, then I opened this thing up. God damn it. Well, if you guys couldn't tell, I'm fucking grateful to be sober. (laughs) So, this is why I went to Scott's funeral. I never met the man, and one more moment, that something saved my life. In the beginning of sobriety, I opened this up, and it says footprints. And I'm I'm sitting there in my camo shorts. I want what you guys have so bad. And I read this. It says, one night a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Fucking Lord, I hated that guy. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life, like these pictures of Scott with his kids, and I wanted what he had so bad. For each scene, he noticed two set of footprints in the sand, one belonging to him and the other to the Lord. When the last scene of his life flashed before him, he looked back at the footprints in the sand He noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. I always thought that one set of footprints was mine. I was always walking alone. God was never there. He also noticed that it happened at the very lowest and saddest times of his life. This really bothered him, and he questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I have noticed that during the most troublesome times of my life, there is only one set of footprints. I don't understand why. When I needed you most, you would leave me. The Lord replied, My precious, precious child, I love you, and I would never leave you. During your times of trial trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. And when I read this at Scott's service, that was the first time in my life that I trusted God. And it was right after I'd given my life to God up here at this retreat. And I had to give him all the lies. And I had to be honest. And this was right after I looked at that woman. And very much could have easily had a drink. And the night could have gone differently. And, uh, and so I leave Scott's service. And I'm just crying and crying and crying. And I want what you guys have so bad. And I take the third step prayer. And right after the third step prayer, you guys know what it says? What the hell does it say? <laughs> it says, next we launch out on a course of vigorous action, the first step of which is a personal house cleaning. Right? That's what Chris was talking about. So I'm making this inventory. I'm writing and writing and writing. I want what you guys got. And I find out that I'm a really defective character. And uh, I got to the sixth, I, I did the fifth step, and, uh, and I had a sim- similar experience to Chris. All this shit I read, wrote down, 
And I was writing and writing and writing and writing and writing, sitting in my brown chair at home, writing and writing and writing. Three in the morning, I'm writing and writing and writing. 50 pages later, every resentment that I could think of from kid till then was on that paper, except for a couple things. And then nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. That's what I hear, or I read, or whatever. And I write down those things. My pen doesn't want to go to the paper. I write that shit down, and I sit with another man, and I get all that crap out. And I find out, I think I'm a defective character. And uh, I turn all that stuff over to God. And uh, and the sixth and the seventh step is a lifetime job. And uh, just because that miracle happened at 43 days sober doesn't mean that I haven't walked around or been at the gym and a girl smiles at me and I think, fuck. She smiled at me. I know what she wants. Or at a year and a half sober, I get a check from a real estate deal that I did. It was uh, it was like it was like eighteen thousand dollars. I really needed the money. How much time do I have? Twelve thirty or twelve forty-five? One minute. All right. I get this, I get this uh, check, and they overpaid me $1,500, and I want what you guys got so bad. And uh, call my sponsor, doesn't answer the phone. I call this other man. I'm afraid, this, that, and the other. He says, you need to turn to page 68. It's a fear solution. Turn to page 68, and I read it. It says, fear solution. We write, we, or fears, we set them on paper. So I start writing and writing and writing, and I walk back in, and I give him the check back, and I tell him they over, you guys overpaid me. And, uh, and they give me the check back, and they said, thanks for being honest. Keep the money. Wow. And uh, there's another moment where I had to become honest. And there's so many moments like that in the last nine years where every time I've been at the fork in the road, when I do my taxes every year, I fucking write on my box, call your sponsor when you do your taxes every year. <laughs> when you get in fear, call. Because every year, I'm like, Trump's going to fuck that up. I ain't giving him the money. Or, or whoever, right? I have to become a man that's willing to be honest. And uh, I believe, for me, of course we can't do it perfectly, but if I'm honest, I have a good chance of staying sober one day at a time. Right? And... Uh, I'm not a drunk mortgage broker anymore. Um, I get to be a sober fireman today. I'm running out of time, so. Um, but God told me at a year and a half sober, now that you're sober, you're supposed to be a fireman. And I went to a meeting and shared what I thought I heard. And I started facing my fears. Step six, I was ready to face the fears. And go do the work. And uh, can I have one more minute? One more. Are you guys hungry? Can I have two more minutes? <laughs> I got a. Uh, I have three kids and a wife. Um, you guys have fucking saved my life. It had given me such a good life. And uh, 
so many times I've had to work so hard to be a married man, sober. But life is good. I feel blessed to go to, to my profession today. Um, my wife trusts me today. One of the old timers in the back asked me, we were sitting down, he said, has your wife forgiven you? My wife found my four-step writing. Somehow it said in there, you know, we spent an hour thinking about this shit, making sure we were thorough. Well, it turned into it sitting in my drawer to make sure I was super thorough, and then she fucking read it. And uh, we, my wife and I have worked through so many things in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, you know, the blessing is that we get to raise our kids through sober eyes and sober ears. And uh, my wife's sober. And uh, she tells me that she trusts me today. I feel like I deserve that today. Um, A little reading from here. Pat, thank you. It says the sixth and seventh steps are where the moment, where the movement into serenity begins. Through step five, we've been learning to know a higher power, seeing the nature of our addictions and admitting the wreckage of our past. Now we are ready for action. Up to now, it has been mostly internal work. We've stopped our active addictive behavior, but we have changed the way we think, behave, and feel. It is no mistake that we must begin to do and understand these steps before making amends. If we're not willing to change our behavior, then where is the value in an amend? These steps are actually steps down and dirty to the core of our life steps. They require accountability and they require action. Two reasons that most people avoid them or make them into notters. And after amends, we keep working these steps as we gain more awareness about ourselves. We come to understand how our character defects are the opposite of the principles of our program. The longer our time in recovery, the easier it is to fool ourselves and others that we have done these steps. We need to take a very close look at all the implications of these two quiet steps and become responsible for working them during our entire recovery journey. Please join in working towards emotional sobriety, recovery with balance by taking a new look at the sixth and seventh steps. Then jump into action and surrender, making positive progress through a continuing series of spiritual awakenings. We spend less time thinking about changing our defects. We mature. We change our defects of character. The answers will come when your own house is in order. Thank you.